I remember when I was a junior in college and I was about to embark on my very first international mission trip to China. I had decided to uh, open up the book of Job, and I think I've told you this before because it was one letter away from my name. I had decided that I was going to read this book while I was on my mission trip. And there are a few times in my life where I have noticed over the years where my theology has sort of been formed and has been shaped in, in certain ways, and this happened to be one of those times. And I remember as I opened up uh, there in the first chapter of Job, and it talked about how Satan had to go to God to ask permission uh, to attack, in a sense, Job. Uh, it, it absolutely, at that moment in time in my life, it sort of wrecked my world. I had never thought about the sovereignty of God in that way before. I had never realized how much he was in control of absolutely everything in our lives. And I remember that sort of, like I said, shaped and formed me at that moment and that time in my life. And then I also remember about three or four years after that, um, I had opened up another book of the Bible in another chapter and was reading and studying uh, with my pastor at the time. Uh, I was down in St. Pete, Florida, and we had opened up the book of John and looked at John chapter 11. And so uh, that was another time and another book that had absolutely formed and shaped my theology as well, and one that I want to open up with you today and to talk about. So if you would, turn with me, and we're going to look at John chapter 11. And we're going to be looking at verses 28 through 44 of John chapter 11. It is found on page 897 of your pew Bibles, that black Bible that is there in front of you. If you do not own a Bible and you need one, you are more than welcome to take one of those home with you as our gift here at Perimeter Road as we continue to try to purify the church and penetrate the culture in Valdosta, Georgia. John chapter 11, verses 28 through 44. If you would, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. starting in verse 28 of John chapter 11. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. 
I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. You may be seated. Just a little bit of uh, background here before we get into the verses that we're going to be looking at. You have Mary and you, Mar- you, have, Mary and you have Martha and you have Lazarus. Uh, they are brothers and sisters there. And uh, Lazarus had become ill. Uh, this is probably a very familiar story to you. Maybe some of you have heard it before. And so Lazarus had become ill and Mary and Martha wanted Jesus to come and to heal Lazarus of his illness, of his sickness. But for whatever reason, and we're going to get into it a little bit more as we go along, uh, Jesus decided not to come right away. Instead, as we read uh, earlier, he waited until four days until he showed up. And at that moment and at that time, Lazarus was already dead. And so Martha, when Jesus came, uh, she was the C-type personality. She was the one who was getting the house ready. She was cooking the meals. Uh, She heard that Jesus was coming. It said that she went outside the village to go and to meet uh, Jesus. But then Mary was the one who was with the family and friends, the other Jews as they talk about, and she was inside uh, crying and weeping for her brother that she loved who had passed away. And so she stayed in the house. And so we pick up here and we see in verse 28, it says, when she had said this. Now that's talking about Martha, but the question becomes when she had said what? And so to know that, we have to go to the verses right before there, verse 25. I'll I'll just start in there and just read that section uh, for us. And it says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And then Martha said to him, she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Now we see that when she had said this, that, Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world, she went and she called her sister Mary, saying in private to her, because remember there's a crowd that is around Mary at this point in time, the Jews that would have been family and friends that would have been there, And she says, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And so when Mary heard this, she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, as we talked about, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were there with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb, right? But yet she was going to meet Jesus. And then it says, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. Now, if you remember, there's a few times when Mary has fallen at Jesus's feet. There was also that time when she had broken up that pure oil, that pure uh, perfume at Jesus's feet, and she had wiped her hair, right, on Jesus's feet with that perfume oil that would have been about a year's wage. And if you remember, that was when Judas Iscariot, he got upset about that. And he said, well, why didn't she sell it and give the money to the poor? And Jesus said, the poor will always be with you, but I won't. Well, that is the same Mary that we're talking about here. And again, we see where she falls again in humility at the feet of the teacher, at the feet of Jesus. 
And so we can see this love and this affection that Mary and Martha and even Lazarus, they sort of had for Jesus and that he had for them. And so he was going to come to see them and come to help them in this time. But yet, as we talked about, he waited until Lazarus was already dead. And so she fell at his feet, uh, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, you've got to understand something. Mary uh, has seen Jesus perform miracles, but Mary has never seen Jesus raise someone from the dead. So Mary and Martha were hoping that Jesus would have done what? She was hoping that, they would, that Jesus would have came earlier, right? That Jesus would have came when Lazarus was ill, not when he was already dead. And so we're seeing here that Mary is a little confused. She's wondering why Jesus would have not came earlier because she really wanted him to come earlier, but he didn't. And so therefore it says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So in this moment, in this time, even though Mary and Martha believe that Jesus is who he says he is, they're not sure if he can perform this miracle of raising Lazarus, their brother, from the dead. You've got to understand something, that they live on the front side of the cross, right? We live on the back side of it. We have the revelation of God's word, and we're able to read the story about what he has done. Well, they live on the front side of it, and they have not seen this miracle performed before. They have seen miracles by him, but not that type of one, and they haven't seen his death, burial, and resurrection yet either. And so as they continue to be able to know Jesus and to hear the stories of Jesus, they begin to know a little bit more clearly of who this guy Jesus truly is. But if you think about it, it's sort of the same thing that happens to you and I, isn't it? As we continue to go back to God's word, as we continue to read more about who he is, we begin to see him a little bit more clearly as well, don't we? And so don't forget that as we're reading through this. So she has fell at his feet, but at the same time, she was wondering why he didn't come earlier, right? Because he's not going to be able to raise a dead man to life, is he? But he could have healed the sick, ill brother. At least that's what it seems like in what she's saying. And so when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews, remember there's a crowd that had followed her thinking she was going to the tomb, but there was a crowd of Jews, of family members and friends. Some of them were probably were not, uh, did not like Jesus, were indignant towards him and what he did. And we'll see that a little bit later. But when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And I want you to know something. That word deeply moved right there in that verse, verse 33, we're not talking about he was deeply moved in the fact that he was crying at that moment in time. Actually, what that word means in the Greek, it's actually literally the snorting of a horse. (laughs) Right? That's what it is. He is angry at this moment and at this time. And the question becomes, why is he deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled? Well, he is angry. He is frustrated at the fact of the ravages of sin on the world. He is seeing this take place in Mary and Martha's life with their brother. And he is upset. He is angry that this is happening and the effects of sin on the world. Now, you've got to understand we can have righteous anger in our life, right? God was angry, Jesus was angry, but yet we also know that they were what? Without sin. 
And so there are times in our life where we can be angry with the effects of sin on the world, but yet we should not allow that to do what? Cause us to sin, right? If we look at maybe abortion, if we look at child abuse, whatever it may be, we can be angry about that, but we can't let that drive us to sin ourselves. And so right here, that's what's happening. Jesus, he is deeply moved in his spirit and he is greatly troubled at the ravages of sin on his friend Lazarus. And the fact how has it affected his sisters as well. And it says, and he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And then what do we see there? John eleven thirty five. 35, the shortest verse is in scripture or verse in scripture. Jesus wept. If you want to memorize a verse, go memorize that one, right? Very simple, very easy, but also very profound. We're seeing here in that short little verse the humanity of who Christ was. In his incarnation, in his enfleshing, he was fully God, but yet at the same time he was what? He was fully man. And so now we have seen where he has gotten angry, where he has gotten upset, and now all of a sudden he has moved to crying, to weeping over the, the, the things that have happened in the world due to sin. I don't think here that Jesus is necessarily weeping for his friend Lazarus at this point in time, because I think he knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. I think he is weeping still over the thought of the ravages of what sin has done to the world. And so as we see this, we see his humanity in this, don't we? We know that he is fully God. We know that he is sinless. We know that he is holy. We know that he is righteous. We know that he is all-knowing, all-powerful, all of those things, that he's everywhere. But then yet at the same time, we also know that he had hair like we have hair, right? He was tempted just like we are tempted. He also wept just like we weep at times in our lives as well. So we can see the humanity that is going on here with Jesus and the fact in John eleven thirty five 35, that Jesus wept. And so some of those Jews that were sort of hanging out around Mary, what did they say? Some of them said, oh, see how he loved him. But then what did others say? But some of them said what? Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Now, in that moment in time, I think they're questioning this man, Jesus. I think they're saying at that moment in that time, well, look at him. Couldn't he who healed the blind man, couldn't he have kept this man from dying? If he would have come a little bit sooner and Lazarus would have been ill, he could have helped him in his illness, right? But now Lazarus is what? He's dead. He's been dead for four days. He can't raise him from the grave, but he could have healed his sickness, right? I think these other Jews, I think they were sort of indignant towards Jesus. I think they were the ones who had sort of walked around and they had seen these miracles that Jesus had performed, but they were still not believing that he was who he said he was. They were not believing like Mary and Martha was. And so they're questioning him right now. Well, we've seen him raise, you know, give sight to the blind. Actually, they had seen up to that point, they had seen six miracles, and this would have been the seventh one that was going to happen. 
Uh, Jesus turned water into wine, John chapter 2. Jesus heals the nobleman's son, John chapter 4. Jesus heals the lame man, John chapter 5. Jesus feeds the multitude, John chapter 6. Jesus walking on water, John chapter 6 as well. Jesus heals the the man that was born blind, John chapter 9. And now we're going to see the seventh of these miracles that Jesus raises uh, Lazarus from the grave. And so I think in this time, I think they are still indignant towards him, even though they have seen some miracles that he has performed, but they're still questioning, oh man, if he would have came sooner, he could have done that, but he can't do this. But what we must understand at this moment and this time is that we didn't need a resuscitation, did we? We need a resurrection. Amen? We didn't need Jesus to help somebody who was ill. We needed him what? To raise us from what? The dead, right? So as we continue on, look at this. Then Jesus deeply moved again. The same exact word of deeply moved before. He's angry again. He's heard the questioning and the bickering and, oh, if he had been here sooner, right? So he's deeply moved again. He has this righteous anger again. What does he do? He came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it, just like you would think when you see Jesus's grave as well, right? They would have been dug out into the side of a hill or a mountain, and there'd have been this huge stone that would have been laid upon it so that the animals or the people would have not gotten into it. And so this big stone had to be rolled away. So Jesus said, take away the stone. Now here's Martha coming back onto the scene. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. Now think of that for a second. That is what? Lazarus' sister. I don't think she really wants that tomb to be rolled away. Why? Because she doesn't want to see her dead brother laying there and an odor coming from him, right? And so I think she's thinking in her mind through saying that, that what? That Jesus is not going to raise him from the dead. If Jesus would have been here sooner, he could have fixed his illness, but Jesus is not going to raise him from the dead. So, Lord, I don't really want to see what my brother who's been dead for four days looks like. So she has some questioning as well, right? She lives before the cross, right? She hasn't seen all of the works that Jesus has done. So even when she says that, she's thinking to herself, I don't know if Jesus can do this either, right? Or at least she's not thinking that at that time. So Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Now, another thing is interesting that it says four days. And I think the reason that it says four days there is because there was this sort of tradition uh, within the Jewish rabbi culture where they believed that the soul of the dead person hovered around the body for three days. But after the third day, the soul would go away to be, uh, I guess, with the Lord, wherever they thought it went. But now you're noticing it says four days, right? And so at this moment and at this time, there was absolutely no opportunity for that soul to still be hovering around the body. And also that the, the stench would have already sat in as well and the decaying would have already happened So there would have been no possibility of anybody thinking that what Jesus is doing was not what? A miracle. Or that he was raising somebody to life that maybe could have actually came back to life that wasn't actually dead. 
And so we see where he stayed away for that amount of time, probably to make sure that everybody who saw what was happening realized that this guy was actually what? Was actually dead. And there was no chance of him coming back to life at this point in time. So verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Now, what is the manifestation of the glory of God? It is what? It is Jesus, right? So he's questioning her at this point in time because she's questioning him. And he says, what? Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? You would see the manifestation of the glory of God, not only in what I am about to do, but ultimately in what? In me going to the cross as well, right? Because this is a foreshadowing of what's going to happen in Jesus's life right after this. This is the last miracle that Jesus performs before he goes on to the cross as well. And you can see the symbolism that is there of this person who is a greater Lazarus that is going to come onto the scene and going to be raised from the dead as well. And so did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And he begins to pray to God and thank him for that. And he said, I knew that you always heard me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. So notice here, he is praying to the Father. And what a great picture here of Jesus praying to the Father. But notice what he's doing here. He's thanking the Father for what he has already allowed to happen. Jesus is so in tune with God, obviously, with God the Father, that he knows that this is going to happen already. And so he's praising here uh, the Father, and he says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, right? He knows God so well. He knows it's already going to happen, that this is going to happen. And then, but look what he also says. He says, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Now take note of that, because we're going to talk about that a little bit more later. So when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. Now, I told you at the beginning that there was a time uh, when I had read Job and it had formed and shaped my theology. Well, also, there was a time when John chapter 11 formed and shaped my theology. And it was when I was in St. Petersburg, Florida. It was the first time that I had taken a position as a uh, vocational minister. Um, I was a uh, student pastor down there in St. Petersburg, Florida. And I remember my, uh, my head pastor, he had decided that he wanted to meet with me every Thursday morning. I, I think he realized that I probably didn't know much. And so he wanted to teach me. He wanted to disciple me. Um, and so every Thursday morning, I pretty much had to go sit in his office and I had a seminary class, right? Um, I look back at it now and I think of how profound that was, how great it was. But at the time, every time I walked into his class, I was, or in his class, in his office, I was super nervous, right? I didn't know what he was going to ask me. He would always ask me these situational questions like, well, what if a parent did this? What would you do? Or if a student did this, what would you do? Uh, but then also at times we would go through God's word and scripture and he would teach me things that were very profound to me at the time. And I remember we got to John chapter 11 and we were reading this verse and he looks at me and he says, Joby, let me ask you one question. What do dead men do? And I was nervous. I wasn't sure. I started to get some sweat on the top of my lip right here. 
And I started to think, okay, okay, that, that seems like a simple answer, but I know it's got to be a little bit more to it than that. So I'm sitting here pondering and I'm, I'm way overanalyzing it, right? And I'm thinking to myself, okay, what did dead men do? What did dead men do? And finally, I got to the point to where I was like, uh, uh, nothing. And he was like, right. Dead men do nothing. And I remember when he said that, it hit me like a ton of bricks. It was God who did the work in Lazarus's life, right? He was the one who raised him from the grave. What did Lazarus do? What did he do? He did nothing. It was a work of God and the Holy Spirit in his life to allow that to happen that day. That absolutely blew my mind at that moment and that time. It was so simple, yet it was so profound, right? I mean, think about it. I remember about two weeks ago, I had a conversation with a young lady, and I didn't really know her too well. Um, I wasn't sure if she was a Christian or she wasn't. And so I just wanted to ask her a couple of questions to try to get to know her a little bit better, to see sort of where she stood in her relationship with the Lord. And so I asked her this question. I said, let me, let, let me ask you a question. I said, if, if you were to die today, and obviously we hope that does not happen, are you 100% sure you would go to heaven? As soon as I asked her that question, she started bawling. She started crying. And I remember I was sort of set back a little bit. I didn't expect that to be her reaction. Usually that's not a question that I get that type of reaction from. And so I'm sort of sitting there and I'm a little confused. I'm like, oh goodness, what did I say? What did I do? Did I say it right? You know, I'm just thinking to myself. And all of a sudden I look at her and I lean in and I say, what, what, what did I say? What about that question caused you to cry and react like you did? And she looked up at me and she said, Joby, I just have too much sin in my life. And I have not worked hard enough to get rid of it. That's what she said. I have too much sin in my life and I have not worked hard enough to get rid of it. And I looked back at her and I said, you know what? I said, that's your problem is your theology. I said, because you think that you can clean that sin up for yourself in your life. But ultimately it is what? It is a work of God in your life, right? He's the one who raises you from the dead. He's the one who is mighty as a safe. He's the one who is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He is the first and he is the last, right? He is sovereign. He is in control. He's the one who tells the earth what to do and when to rotate. He's the one who put the light in the sky. He's the one who is all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere, she thought she was going to have to clean herself up. She thought she was going to have to do the work. And there's so many people this day and age that believe that, right? But ultimately, we can't fix that problem. Only God could fix the problem. And he chose to fix that through his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. But so many times we think we need what? We think we need the resuscitation, but we don't. We need what? The resurrection, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. What did dead men do? Nothing. For my Pirates of the Caribbean fan, they tell no tales, right? Absolutely nothing. It was God that worked in Lazarus' life. 
He's the one who spoke life back into him. May we never forget that. May we always live in light of that. May we realize that no matter what situation that we are a part of, that God knew that that situation was going to happen. And may we trust and believe in him in that moment and in that time, whether it is good or whether it is bad. But notice here, too, what Jesus does. He says, Lazarus, come out. And what does it say right before that? He cried out with a loud voice. Now, there's only three times within the scriptures when Jesus cries out with a loud voice. Back in that day and age, rabbis or teachers did not speak in a loud voice because their pupils were expected to listen. Now, I know my teachers in here would love that to happen today, wouldn't you? Amen. Can I get an amen from my teachers, right? Thank you. But there are three times within scriptures where we see that. He cried out over Jerusalem. He also on the cross cried out what? It is finished. And then the third time that we see is here when he cries out, Lazarus, come out. Now the question in my mind becomes, do I think for a moment that he was yelling this, that he was crying this out, that he was screaming this because Lazarus could hear him? No, absolutely not. Lazarus was what? Dead. So remember what we read right before that? But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. They're in Bethany. It's about two miles away from Jerusalem. During this time, it was the time of Passover. This city, this place was swelling with people. So Jesus is not saying this for the dead man that is laying in the tomb. He's not screaming this for the dead man that is laying in the tomb. He is screaming this for the people that would have been standing around. And you know what he's actually saying? He's saying, wake up to a lost and dying world that is seeing the ravages of sin upon their people. Wake up is what he's saying. And as I sit in here today and as I stand on this stage today, I ask you the same question, Perimeter Road Baptist Church. Wake up. There are so many of you that are sitting in the pews right now that you think you can clean yourself up. You think that if I just show up to church or if, if I'm just a good person, that I can change my life. You're going to go buy every self-help book that there is on the bookshelf because you know what's best for you, right? If I just do these things, if I just work this hard, then all of a sudden I'm going to get the sin out of my life. You believe just like the young lady believed, but ultimately you were what? You're dead. And we all were dead, right? Ephesians chapter 2, right? You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience among whom you all once lived in the passage of your flesh. But God being what? Rich in mercy. And because of his great love for you, he rose you from the grave, right? He died for you on that cross. If you would put your trust and your faith, and you would believe in him. And we know that faith comes through what? Through hearing and hearing what? Hearing the word of the Lord. So wake up. 
Listen to what Jesus is saying here. See who he is. See what he has done. See what he is about to do in his own life in death, burial, and resurrection. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, it's interesting here. The story just sort of abruptly ends. You don't see where Mary and Martha are going back and hugging, uh, you know, their brother that has been raised from the grave. Because why? That's not the point of the story, is it? It's the fact that Jesus here is foreshadowing. He's pointing to his future death, burial, and resurrection on the cross, right? That's the point of the story, of someone who's going to be greater than Lazarus, right? Of someone who's greater than Moses, of someone who's greater than David or Daniel, right? He's pointing to that. He's foreshadowing to that because right after he did this miracle, he's going to be doing what? He's going to be getting on the cross himself. But notice here some differences here. Uh, in the two. It says, the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Now notice when we think of Jesus's resurrection, where were his linen strips at? They were laying in the tomb nice and neatly, right? But yet Lazarus has them what? Bound around him. And I think the reason for that is, if I'm just observing here, I think it's because we know that Lazarus will one day go back to the grave. But when Jesus was raised from the grave, he will never go back. Amen? Why? Because he has defeated death. He has defeated hell. He has stomped the head of the serpent. He has won the victory already. And so he will never be back. When he comes back, guess what? He's coming back to judge the entire world. And only those who have a relationship with him are going to be the ones who ultimately are not going to spend eternity in hell. That's what's going to happen. So in a sense, when we're living after the cross, we're living in anticipation of one day when Christ is going to return, but we're also living in the sense of reflecting back on what Christ has done for us on the cross as well. So we need to be looking forward, but we also got to be reminded of what has happened as well. And so we can put our hope in the fact that we know that what God says is going to happen. He is faithful. He is sovereign. He is ultimately in control. He's the one who raised Lazarus from the grave without Lazarus doing anything else in his power. He sent the power of the Holy Spirit to resurrect him because God is mighty to save. As you continue on, and I know we didn't go this far, but I'm just going to read it. Verse 45, what does it say? Just to give you sort of a sense of what happened. It says, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. He was saying it to the people that were around, right? They saw that miracle and they believed. What an awesome and amazing God that we serve. My hope and my prayer for you today is that you will wake up. 
that if you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that you will put your trust and your faith in Christ and in Christ alone. You can't fix the problem for yourself. Only God can fix that problem in your life. So many times we try to pull our bootstraps up. We try to work so hard to do that in our lives when really it's only a work of God. So I pray that you will have the demeanor as Mary had and that you would fall at the feet of Jesus, that you would humble yourself, that you would die to yourself, and that you would see that Jesus is mighty to save. Bow your heads with me and let's pray. Dear Lord, you are an amazing and awesome God. You are sovereign. You are in control. You are the beginning and the end. You are the first and you are the last God. We would be absolutely nothing without you in our lives, God. I thank you, Lord, for this reminder of just how big you are and how small we are in light of a holy and sovereign God. And I pray, Lord, that we would be reminded of this daily, God, that we would be reminded of the fact that we didn't need a resuscitation, God, but we needed a resurrection, and we found that in your Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would never forget that, God, and that we would live in light of that each and every day of our life. We thank you, God, for your many blessings. We thank you, God, for your great reminder and for your revelation to us. We pray this in your son's precious name, through the power of the Holy Spirit and by the grace of God. Amen.